0: Wonderworking power in the pressure. Incredible as they seem, are not the results of massive masses. You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Hey, come on in. Oh, uh, let me just move some of this stuff off the chair. My daughter, Kiara. First year psych at university. Parties more than her mother and I would like, but she's doing okay. <laughs> what can you do? Want some coffee? No? Well, just grab a seat then. So I guess you want to hear that story then, huh? No? I said I'd tell it, and I'll tell it. I'm just not going to enjoy it. Uh, okay. I guess I'll start by saying I never knew much about my dad's side of the family until he died. My mom's lots. Too much, if I'm honest. They're Catholic, so there's about a hundred of them, and they all live in B.C., about an hour's drive from each other. Spent most of my summers out there as a kid and got enough drama and politics to last a lifetime. But on my dad's side, well, I've got one aunt and a cousin, but my dad and my aunt never really talked. See, my grandfather drank, and he died young, and everyone in the family blamed everyone else. Probably, I'm speculating here, because they all really blame themselves. Well, you probably know the kind of guy my dad was, not the type to talk about his past or feelings or anything like that, And so beyond the stuff I just said, which I mostly gathered from things my mom told me, I didn't really know much about him until he died. Don't think I really got to know him until I went through his stuff after the funeral. Yeah, yeah, people tell me that's often the way of things. Anyway, after he's gone, mom gets in touch with me and says she's going to stay over at his house for a few days and sort through some stuff. And since we haven't seen much of each other since Jessica and I moved out of the city, she asks if we all want to come stay as well. Make it a sort of family thing. So I say, sure. (laughs) No, they, they hadn't been together for years. She was still in his will and everything, and in their own way, I think they still loved each other. But she'd have been a lunatic to stay with him, and he'd have been a lunatic to let her. You can ask the question. I said I'd tell you the story and I'll tell you the story. No, no, he never hit us. I think he was always afraid, though, that that was a person he could become. If you talked to anyone he knew, you'd hear that he had a temper. But it went deeper than that. I think he had real anger issues. Scary ones. Don't think I ever met anyone that angry in my whole entire life. Growing up, we'd always have these polka dots on the walls where he'd put his fist through them, then patch them up later. Never laid a hand on either of us, though. At least, he never laid a hand on me, and my mother says he never laid one on her. I guess I believe her, but also I guess you can never really tell in a situation like that. But there was always the the possibility. He never hit us, and never threatened to hit us. But it was like the three of us were living every day with the fear that one afternoon he might completely lose control and put one of us in the hospital. It must have been terrifying for him. Christ knows it was for us. Oh, I, I didn't become conscious of any of this until a couple years ago. Jess made me start seeing a shrink, and it made a huge difference in my life. A lot of guys wouldn't talk about that, but... Hey, that's, that's how it is. Unconsciously, though, I always knew... Back when I was in kindergarten, it was still sort of accepted to spank your kids. And some people were saying, hey, you could do a lot of damage to your kid that way, but as you might guess, my dad was not one of them. 100%, that was a guy who believed in corporal punishment. Thought criminals should be caned, like in Singapore or whatever. But in spite of that, he never spanked me. Not even once. It was like he knew that if he crossed that line once, just one time, then that was it. There'd be no going back. We'd all become one of those horror stories you see on the news. (laughs) So, after I got a job and moved out at 17, it wasn't long before Mom called it quits and got her own place too. Personally, I think Dad was relieved. So, I guess that's all to say, going back to the old bastard's place wasn't really a happy homecoming. It was the family home, though. My grandparents place originally and in its own way it was sort of a vacation for jess and kiera and i a few days in the city's nice when you live in the burps so we take an afternoon to get settled in jess and i have the master bedroom kiera is about seven at this time so she's got the pullout couch in the office which had been my bedroom growing up and dad's before that we order in chinese and try to watch a movie on tv but Dad set's about 100 years old with no cable or anything, so it's basically either CBC or the news in Spanish. Mom's not staying with us, by the way. She's at home, about 20 minutes away by transit. The plan for the next day is, Jess takes Chiara to the museum, and Mom and I start looking through the old man's stuff on our own. If I'm not being clear, it's small doses of Mom for Jessica, sometimes. We don't sleep that well that night, though. Kiera has a nightmare around 2, and it takes an hour for her to get back to sleep. As a result, I'm pretty crabby when Mom starts leaning on the doorbell at 8 the next morning. But that's life with kids. And parents. I make bacon and put on some coffee while Mom gets started on the boxes. Jess sneaks Kiera out the back door before Mom can ask the two of them to help for just a few minutes. And then it's just Mom and I getting to work. And it's actually a lot of fun in its own way. You know, we're, we're just down in the basement, putting things in new boxes, unpacking old boxes and sorting things into piles of keep and throwaway and whatever, taking stuff out to the curb and that. A couple of years at that point since I've had some good one-on-one time with my mom. So it's nice. And at some point that morning, we start talking about dad and his life and about who he was to her when they were young. And I start to realize how little I knew him. Like, to me, he was just this tyrant. And after that, this crusty old bastard. But talking to Mom, I start to see this whole other side of him. How, for her, when she was just this twenty-year-old from Tumbleweed, B.C., he was this dashing mystery man. She showed me some pictures of him from when they first started going out. And he looks like a young Brando. Like, Jesus, why wasn't I ever that handsome? And then, somewhere along the line, we also start talking about his anger... And that's when she starts to tell me a little bit more about his dad's drinking. He, my granddad, wasn't a mean drunk. Didn't have anything like my father's anger for sure. Otherwise, I doubt dad would have made it. That much anger and alcohol? Not safe. No, granddad was more of a sad drunk. He'd disappear for days on end, go months without a job, drinking away the savings in a dark room full of his own despair. I think he had little affairs, too. Sad trysts with other drinkers from the church or neighborhood. Though my grandmother was never the sort to give you a straight answer about that sort of thing. She cared about appearances. Your granddad, she would say, just liked a little whiskey now and then. Well, now and then doesn't drop you dead at 55. But because of all this, dad had to be the man of the house from the age of 10, working full-time at 15, never finished high school. That's something I never knew before, which was probably a relief for the teachers. But that amount of responsibility, that young, that's a lot of strain. And strain, you have to do something with it, right? But dad also had to be better than his dad to be the man his mom expected him to be. And so instead of drinking or screwing around or whatever, he just took all that strain and he bunched it up inside him and he Carried it around in his chest like a lit stick of dynamite for the whole rest of his life. Can you guess what killed him? (laughs) Bingo. Huge coronary. Doctors say they never saw anything like it. (sighs) Anyway. So, Mom and I are talking about all this. And I start thinking about how, how all of my shit comes from my dad. And all of his shit comes from his dad. And so the next natural thought is... Okay, so where did all his shit come from? And I put it like that to my mom. And that's when the conversation stopped cold. Well, I don't know if this is how it really happened, or or if I'm just making things up in light of... what came later. But the way I remember it now is... this shadow passed over her face, like the sun behind a cloud. then her shoulders slumped, and she just said, I don't know, honey. And then that she was tired and we should take a break for lunch. Well, maybe it was odd, but I didn't think too much about it. You know, fair enough. It's been a long morning and she's getting older. Why wouldn't she be tired? Well, as I'm going up the stairs for lunch, she stops to pick up this heavy, dusty cardboard box. I ask her what she's doing with it. Oh, it's just a box of stuff we already looked through. I'll just take it out to the curb. Are you sure? I don't think I recognize it. Oh, yes, it's just a bunch of your dad's old tactical manuals. Except, I remember the box of the manuals, and this isn't it. And as I take a closer look, I notice that the box is... old. Really old. Coming apart at the corners, held together by crumbling tape. the dust on top is... matted. Crusty. Thick. Now I start to think something's up, because if we'd looked through that box, the dust would have been disturbed... And also, my mom is not the sort of person who'd lose track of which boxes were which. Just ask Jess. She'll tell you my mom's methodical to a fault. So I say, You know what? You shouldn't be carrying something this heavy. Let me bring it up. Oh, no, no. Honestly, it's fine. No? Really? I insist. She half-heartedly lets me take the box, and I lug it upstairs and leave it in the hallway, saying I'll deal with it later. And since she doesn't make a fuss, I start to think, maybe nothing was up at all maybe she did just mix up the boxes. So, we have lunch, and do a few more hours of work in the afternoon. I try to steer the conversation back to my granddad and great-granddad a couple times, but every time I do, she just starts talking about condo board politics. So, eventually, I drop it. Jess and Kiera get home mid-afternoon, mom hangs out with them for a bit while I cook dinner, and after the dishes are done, mom heads home. Now, At this time, Jess is in the early stages of being pregnant with Harris, so later in the evening she gets this craving for ice cream, and I head out to the corner store to get some. But when I'm coming back up the street, I notice something in the driveway. That box. It's tucked in among all the others that got put out, like someone was trying to hide it underneath them, and I know how Jess gets about old dust, so I'm certain it was Mom. And at this point, I don't have the bandwidth to open it up and dig through. So I grab the box, bring it back inside, and put it right back down outside the office where it was sitting before. I'll find out what the hell's going on with it in the morning. Well, as you can probably guess, that didn't happen. We end up having another rough night. Dad's mattress is well past shelf life, and Kara's having nightmares again. And this time, they're so bad she insists on sleeping with us the rest of the night. So once again, I'm exhausted when Mom starts rapping on the windows at 8 a.m. Jessica's pissed because this is supposed to be a vacation and she should be able to sleep in. But Kiara's already bouncing around the house anyway, so I groan and roll out of bed and complain about my back and make some coffee and eggs. Once again, Jess manages to smuggle Kiara out the back door before Mom can guilt them into helping. Come on, honey, we're going to the aquarium. But Mom, I hate fish. <laughs> As you can guess, by this point I've completely forgotten about the box. Then, as I'm waiting for mom at the top of the stairs, she walks out of the bathroom wiping her hands on her jeans and... then just stops dead. Like she's walked into a wall. And her face goes... gray. I've never seen anything like it before. Her her face just goes gray on the spot. Hey, what's wrong? And she looks at me. And suddenly there's anger in her eyes. Not just anger. Fury. Why on earth did you put this picture up? Picture? What are you talking about? She crosses one arm across her body and points with the other. Now, on the wall outside the bathroom door, there's some old family photos. Great aunts and uncles. People who died before I was born. No clue who most of them are. And she's pointing at one of these photos. And... She's angrier than I have ever seen her in over 30 years. Sorry, what? What are you so angry about? This picture. Why did you put this picture back up? And the picture, the one she's pointing at, it's this old sepia photograph of a guy in a dark jacket, sort of a military looking coat. What are you talking about? I didn't put that up. It's been there for years. This picture was not here yesterday. Well, nobody put any pictures up, so unless a burglar broke in and started decorating the place, then it was already there. See? And when I nudged the picture on its hook, sure enough, there was a patch of darker paint underneath, like the paint's been protected from the light for ages. At this point, I start thinking that maybe Dad's death has hit Mom a little harder than she thought. (sighs) Who is this picture of, anyway? She's just staring at it. Then she shakes her head. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, you were right. Let's just get back to work. She seems rattled, so I drop it. We head downstairs and get to work, and before you know it, she's telling me how she ran into this person who's a real idiot, and heard from that person who's not doing so well these days, and whatever happened to so-and-so, and everything's fine. And eventually, the pace of the work starts to slow. You know how it is. You open a box to see if it's junk and then something catches your eye and all of a sudden you've been reading 1950s report cards for 40 minutes. Well, I'm late morning and I've been sucked down one of these rabbit holes. I'm elbow deep in a box of my granddad's old immigration papers. Born in England, came over as a kid during the war. All of a sudden I straighten up. Something in the papers has struck me as odd and it takes me a full minute to figure out just what that thing is. Once I do stands out as really odd. Hey, uh, didn't Granddad come over during the war? Hmm? Yes, that's right, during the Blitz. I look at the document again and blink a couple times, making sure I haven't misread. But these immigration papers say he came over in 45. Okay, so? Well, the Blitz had been over for years by then. Had it? You know, what can I say, I'm a dad, I know a lot of facts about World War II, And when i tell her i'm sure she says well that does seem a little strange and shuts right back up again i decide not to push it with how she's been acting there's clearly something going on with her and so for the rest of the morning i just leave it we talk about some celebrity gossip or something and then we head upstairs to have leftovers for lunch i offer to take care of the dishes and when i'm done i wander into the living room and find her staring at a picture hanging in the corner An old black and white family portrait. Mother, father, daughter, younger son. And because I'm an idiot, I open my mouth. Was that one there yesterday? And then she turns to me. And for a moment, all I see is this deep terror in her eyes. And then I get really afraid because I start to think maybe she's really losing it. My mom's losing it. But then she rolls her eyes and slaps me on the arm. Real funny. Excuse me, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And she brushes past me and heads upstairs to use the second floor toilet. All the way upstairs, even with her bad joints. Even though the bathroom with that other picture is just a few steps down the hall. As soon as she's gone, I take the black and white portrait off its hook. And of course, there's a round patch behind it too, like it's hung there for years. I take a moment to study the picture... It's the same man. The father in this portrait is the same as in the photo hanging across from the bathroom door. A couple years older and with a bit of a beard, but it's the same high cheekbones, the same square jaw. Handsome man. A bit like a young Brando, even though the picture is black and white and you can see just how clear and pale his eyes are. I flip the frame over in my hands. A couple of names written in cursive on the discolored backing. William. Elizabeth. Mary Clifford. Must be names, huh? But I recognize one of them. Clifford. My grandfather's name. So it's a portrait of his family. My family. Him, my great-aunt, great-grandmother, and... William. The man with the pale eyes. My great-grandfather. The toilet flushes upstairs, and I quickly hang the portrait back up on the wall. I'm waiting by the basement stair as my mom picks her unsteady way back down, hand clutching at the banister. After about another hour of work and more celebrity gossip, it's my turn to head upstairs and use the washroom. For some reason, I follow her example and head up to the second story. On my way back down, I notice something that I'd forgotten about. That dusty box, waiting for me in the grey autumn light outside the office where my daughter sleeps for reasons that I don't quite understand at the time. The sight of it puts a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. But now I've been reminded of the mystery and the bits between my teeth, so I pull over a dining room chair and sit down beside it and unfold the dusty tongues of its lid, revealing just a bunch of old papers, heaps of disorderly letters written in illegible cursive. I shift aside a few piles and underneath discover a sort of leather-bound scrapbook and the first page is a crumbling folded document that reads, George V. across the top. As in George V. It's a commission, granting the rank of midshipman in His Majesty's Navy to 1. William Onslow. Gentleman. William. Pale eyes, dark military-looking coat. Him again. Looking at the date, and doing a bit of math in my head, I come up with the fact that he'd been crazy young at the time. We're talking 12 or 13 on an active warship. As I've learned since, the Royal Navy didn't raise the minimum age of midshipmen until something like 1950. So, he was in the Navy. I never knew that about my great-grandfather. Or anything about him, really. And now I'm starting to think that this was something that had been kept from me on purpose as a sort of pacifist thing. My mom's a bit of a hippie. She's part of that generation. But as I start fluffing through this book... I forget about all that, because I'm drawn into the pages. All of these pictures, sepia photos from 190 something of life aboard ship and sundry ports of call, strange locations, strange people lost to the foreign country of the past. And there's this one picture that stands out. It's taken in, I don't know, Southeast Asia or something. A beach with dark bluish palm trees in the back. I think the kid in this picture must be William, because he has these pale eyes, and because in his own strange way, he looks a lot like how I looked at that age. And there's a man with him, standing really close behind him, with both hands on his shoulders. And since it's a long exposure photograph, it's impossible to tell what this man's face looks like, because he moved while it was being taken, and his features are only a blur. And all around them, it it takes me a moment to figure out what they are, because... Your brain isn't expecting to see what they are, but all around them, five or six on either side, are these chest-high wooden stakes, and each one carries a human head spitted like a melon. This is the picture I'm holding in my hand when my mother comes back upstairs. You can't... When she sees me holding this picture, it's like she's going to break to little pieces, But I guess she's strong. You'd have to be to live with my dad for as long as she did. And so she steps up to me, and calm as anything, takes the picture from my hand and folds it back into the book, and closes the book and seals it with all the letters back inside its filthy box. Then she says to me, Honey, I want you to take this box out to the curb. And I do. But when I get to the curb... I put down the box, and then I stare at it for a moment. And then, I... Open it up again. I take the picture, tuck it into my pocket, and only then do I close the box back up and walk away. Why? I I don't know why. Lots of reasons. Morbid curiosity. A desire to preserve some family history. He was my great-grandfather... He was a part of me. I don't know. Well, when I get back inside, Mom's waiting at the kitchen table. She's put on a pot of tea. Asks me to sit down. I think it's time I told you the truth. I just nod and sit across from her. Accept a cup of tea with lots of milk and sugar. And then, when she hands it across to me, a yellowed old envelope. What's this? It's for you to read. Unfolding the lip, I find a stained letter, well on its way to dust. It's written in neat cursive and dated November 1944. Dear Colleen. Uh, Who's Colleen? A distant relative on your father's side. Her family put up your grandfather when he came over from England. So, what's that have to do with... whatever's going on? She looks at me steadily and it's the look I remember her giving me when I scraped my knees as a child or got my heart broken as a teenager. Just read the letter, Edward, if you want to. I looked down at the page. Dear Colleen, the winding cursive, I hope this letter finds you well. Have just received word that William has been discharged and will be returning to us after all. And so I now have to ask something of you that goes beyond all reasonable expectations. Will you take Clifford in? Please. He's seven now, the same age as Mary was. I cannot go through it again, Colleen. Please, I cannot go through it again. In desperation, Elizabeth. A long silence as I reread the letter, and my mother drank her tea quietly on the other side of the table... Mary, the name from the back of the photo in the living room, my grandfather's older sister, seven, the same age that Mary was. William will be returning in desperation. In a soft voice, my mother asked me, Do you understand? Without saying anything, I folded the letter back into its home and passed it across the table. After that, I stood and went into the living room, and took down the picture that was hanging there, leaving a pale circle in the paint. Then I went to the bathroom, collected that photograph as well. I brought them both out to the curb, and smashed them, and threw them in with the rest of the garbage. I didn't throw away the photograph in my pocket, though. Good God, don't ask me why. He was only a boy in that one. Still only a boy. When I came back inside, I ducked into the office and found one of my old notebooks, hid the photo inside for safekeeping. And after that, my mother and I spent the rest of the day trying to bury everything in hard work. We made more progress in two hours than we had in two days, and when Jess and Kiara came back in the evening, Mom didn't stay for takeout. She just said she felt tired and wanted to go home. Jess, and this is one of the reasons why I love her, immediately knew that something was up. So, after she put Carrie to bed, she found me sitting in the living room and poured us both a drink. And waited until I'd told her everything. And that night. No. No, I said I'd tell you the story. No, I don't need to take a break. All right. All right. That night, I had strange dreams. I still remember parts of them. I was standing in the living room, looking at that family portrait hanging on the wall. But I knew something was wrong in the way you sometimes do in dreams, because I remembered that I'd smashed the picture and thrown it out. It had changed, though, because in this version of the picture, Elizabeth was sitting off to the side with her hands over her mouth, and William was standing behind Clifford and Mary and he had both of his hands pressing down on Mary's shoulders, and somehow he also had both of his hands pressing down on Clifford's shoulders. And he was smiling. And then I noticed that in the background of the picture wasn't some drawing room in England. It was that beach in Southeast Asia. And there was a pair of hands pushing down on William's shoulders as well the sailor with no face who had stood behind him in the photo. And there were a pair of hands pushing down on his shoulders some other faceless man. And above him, another. And above him, another, in infinite regress. And all around the children on the beach, those quiet witnesses, the severed heads. And though the rest of the photograph was still those heads still, slowly bled. And that was when I woke to hear my daughter screaming. I lurched out of bed. It was like still being in a dream. You you want to run and go, but everything seems hazy and insubstantial, and you're dizzy and your whole body feels weak. I, I tripped over some old box in the hall, fell against some old photo on the wall, and cut my hand on broken glass. Kiera's scream rose to an even higher pitch, and when I burst into the room, something was crouched over her in the darkness, and I shouted at it, but my voice came out weak and half-strangled with fear, and the something in the darkness turned its face toward me, and all I could see in the gloom was a pair of pale, blue eyes. And then Jessica turned on the light, and there was nothing in the room but the two of us and our crying daughter. Jess doesn't. One time, some old university friends of hers came over and each of them drank a bottle of wine to themselves. She told me she'd seen something after that, but she denies it now. Well, I picked up my daughter and grabbed my wife by the hand and took them down to the car, we had some cough medicine in the glove compartment, and I gave Kiera more than I probably should have as a responsible parent. And I drove us an hour and ten minutes back to our house. That night, neither Jess nor I said anything. That night, she believed it. Kiera? I, I don't think so. I hope she doesn't. No. No, I, I-, I never talked to her about it because i because i wanted to end with her i want to be the last one who knows his name well the morning after that i called mom and drove back to the city to meet at her place told her not to go to the house until i got there when i arrived all she said to me was you saw him didn't you yeah yes i did Well, we did go back, and when we got there, the front door was open. I'd slammed it behind me the night before, I knew I had. And when we went inside, the um, pictures were hanging just where they'd been, in the living room and outside the bathroom, the glass on both frames intact. The pull-out couch in the office was immaculate, We'd left it in a tangle of sheets. Somebody had folded up the bed and left their box of things sitting on top of it. That photograph, with the heads, was neatly propped up in the dust. We took the box, the photograph, and those pictures from the wall back out into the driveway and doused them with lighter fluid and set them on fire. Then we sold the house for half its worth to some development company who tore it down and built a giant, ugly, fucking McMansion. Is that it? I hope so. But sometimes I look at Kira and I think about the kind of father I've been, and... I... I, I don't know. I just don't know. I hope that's it. I hope that's it. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation for an ad-free RSS, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes discussions, and more. This week's remastered episode, Family Photos, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Lauren Lehman, Elmar, Library Seraph, Matthew Eager, John, Monica Grasso, The Archis, Michael Benson, Catherine H., and Joshua Fillion for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Elon Citrum and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You could follow The Wrong Station on social media at The Wrong Station and email us at The at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.